and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. So first of all, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting us. We've really enjoyed doing this over the years, and it means the world to us that you continue to listen to these conversations with just remarkable people. I feel so grateful that I get to spend time with these people, and I hope you enjoy listening to them in your ears as well. If you like today's conversation or any of our past episode, we'd appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. Hopefully, you'll give us five-star ratings and uh, share these conversations. Share them on social media. Share them with a friend. Send a text or an email with a link uh, to today's conversation. And the more that we can spread these messages, especially in the circumstances that we're in today, I think the better off we'll be as a society. So that's one of the reasons I continue to put these conversations out into the universe. Now to today's guest, Mark Palomaropoulos, which I'm glad I think I got his name right, worked in the CIA for 26 years and retired in 2019 after working as an analyst to start his career, and then he moved into operations. And he's one of their most decorated field officers uh, and has honed a unique leadership style based on decision-making, under pressure, inclusivity, camaraderie, which we talk a lot about in this conversation, and competition. He terms this finding clarity in the shadows, which he's going to talk about his upcoming book and also what he talks about when he does a lot of public speaking. And Mark's goal is to pass on the knowledge that he learned in the CIA to the private sector. And his hope is that they can benefit from his unique experience serving his country in the hot spots of the world. And Mark is going to go into a lot of stories that, of course, he has got approved by the CIA to tell these stories. And we talk about everything from secrecy to leadership to the sacrifices he had to make uh, with his family and some of the mental health challenges that come with being on the front lines and being in hostile and rugged environments, which Mark spent a lot of his career in. So this is just a thought-provoking conversation. It's amazing to get an inside look and to get a behind-the-curtain uh, experience from someone who's been working uh, for the CIA for a number of years. And Mark is very intentional 
intentional when it comes to leadership and how he thinks about leadership and what he learned during his time working at the CIA. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Mark Polymeropoulos. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We got connected by Tim Ogden, uh, whose son I think plays baseball with your son. Is that right? Oh yeah, it does. We've known the, the Ogdens for a long time. They're great people, great family, and uh, and you know anyone who's a friend of Tim's is a friend of mine. He actually he took me uh, to see the Blue Angels last year at the Naval Academy um, uh, when they had a demonstration. So uh, so I owe him big time for that. You know, it's interesting you talk about the Blue Angels. I have it on my calendar for this fall they're doing a show in baltimore and i've got a, a four-year-old and a three-year-old and my four-year-old's obsessed with them and we've watched documentaries on them and i was just looking at the calendar yesterday because i'm hoping that we'll still be able to go and we just don't know if that will be something that you can end up doing it'll be interesting if that happens but for those that haven't seen the blue angels and are unfamiliar with them oh. they are incredible to watch in person i've seen them a bunch of times i know they are and mostly navy fighty fighter pilots that you know fly within feet of each other going hundreds of miles and do flips and all kinds of stuff and their training is unreal if you study them their discipline and the way they give feedback to each other and the way they lead and work with each other is, is remarkable so what a cool place to start and tim just a shout out to tim he's introduced me to some of the most remarkable people that i've come across in my life and so uh tim had i think tweeted something out about you and a talk that you may have given to the baseball team. And I said, wait a second, Tim, that's somebody who sounds like would be great for me to have on my podcast and connected us. And we chatted on the phone. And I think we had scheduled this time in the hopes that we would be able to do this in person. And here we are still quarantined. And um, I'm looking forward to learning from you today and learning about your journey, your story, and also your mindset um, sort of living in the shadows so this right. is gonna be a lot of fun perhaps where we could start is give me a little bit of background on, on your upbringing and what life was like for you as a kid and and how you ended up going in the direction that you you ended up going in sure so and, and it's, it's funny people ask me this all the time so you know how do you how do you end up um you know joining the cia which is something that a lot of people just you know think about from from books and movies and it, you know it was a it was a kind of a interesting path for me i had a, a unique childhood my uh, my dad is greek and my mom was American. And, uh, and so we definitely had this kind of family in which, you know, we traveled back to Greece every summer. So I had kind of traveled throughout Europe. So I kind of got the travel bug. Um, my dad was a college professor. And so we spent a year in Algeria um, in 1980. So here I am, you know, 10 years old or 11 years old. And my mom shipped me off and him and my father and I traveled for two months through the Sahara Desert. Um, you know, in an old Volkswagen minibus sleeping in, in oases. And so I, you know, I fell in love with the Middle East. So all these strange things, you know, these kind of childhood experiences. So when I kind of got to high school and to college, I started thinking about, you know, doing something, um, uh, uh, you know, involving my country. I was a, you know, I'm a great patriot and I wanted to do kind of uh, public service and, and the CIA seemed, uh, seemed like a, 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 a great, uh, a great line of work. And I went off to Cornell university. And I'll never forget when the recruiter came, um, to Cornell, you know, I guess at, at that time, you know, that was, this was 1990, 1991. There was protests on campus against the CIA. So there were security guys there with earpieces. But anyway, I got recruited out of Cornell and uh, it's the only job, scarily enough, as I've just retired, the only job I ever had after, you know, after 26 years, I'm, I'm out talking about it, but uh, uh, it was a, uh, it was really kind of a unique journey. You mentioned being a patriot, but dad being Greek, was uh, that more from mom or more from dad? Like where, where did that patriotism come from? So it, it, it's a, it's a, a great question. So, you know, my mom tells a wonderful story of when I was, 
must have been one month old, and she's on our roof in Athens, and she's listening to Voice of America as you know, with as as uh, uh, there's the first moonwalk, um, and just that inspired her so much, and the world was inspired. Um, but interestingly enough, you know, a lot of times, you know, my the, in fact, I was born in Greece too, and so my dad was an immigrant. Um, so a lot of times, I've seen this so much, even in my career at CIA, where we kind of have this incredibly diverse officer cadre. But for those who come from another country and then come to the States, you appreciate so much more what we have in terms of freedom and opportunity. So, um, you know, that's not to say that my father was a huge fan of my choice of work because the CIA has an interesting, has had an interesting history. Um, in Greece, they supported the Greek right wing junta in the 1970s. But I have a I have a great story about that one time when my father and uh, then director George Tennant met. Um, and, uh, and, and so, you know, there's, yeah, I think my dad still has, has a lot of pride in what I'm doing, but still might not be the, uh, maybe it wasn't his first choice of, of government agencies, but he's okay with it now. You mentioned that um, immigrant, <clears throat> immigrant story, and I had on a Purple Heart winner, Flo Groberg, and it is very similar to him. And, you know, his family was affected by terrorism in France. And, um, and I think he felt from a young age, the desire to go and enlist in the military. For you though, in high school, were there thoughts of service? Was there thoughts of like doing some sort of public service or military or like, did you have a vision for yourself to go down that path? Sure, I definitely did. And, but of course, you know, I, uh, 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 so I, I, I was certainly interested in something in the national security field. You know, my first application for college, which I, which I didn't go through with because I actually, because I couldn't, but it was the Naval Academy, but then I failed my, my eye test. So I couldn't be a pilot. So that was, but that was at one point I wanted to go uh, uh, into the Navy. Um, and then, you know, I guess I, I, maybe I read a lot of Tom Clancy books and again, my overseas travel and I fell in love with the Middle East. And so I even between uh, my, um, my senior year in at Cornell and then I, and I went to graduate school there as well. I also interned for Joe Biden when he was on the uh, uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So, you know, just lots of international experience and, and the agency seemed like um, kind of the right, right landing place. And, and, and again, this is, this is pre 9-11 times. So it's, you know, there weren't, you know, the, the, the my, my training class at CIA was maybe 30, 35 of us, our operations officer class, you know, after 9-11, these classes were 200 plus. So it was, it was you know, it was not um, uh, kind of the, the, the rush to join as, uh, as happened after 9-11, which was pretty remarkable for other people for their reasons of, of clearly of patriotism. And what did mom and dad do for a living? What, were your, what was your upbringing like? Did you have siblings? Just walk us through like what life was like in your, in your household. I grew up in New Jersey in a you know, college town. Again, my dad was a professor at Rutgers University. So I grew up in Highland Park, New Jersey. Um, uh, my dad was, uh, you know, taught, he was the, at one point chairman of the engineering, the mechanical engineering department. Uh, my mom was a kind of an advertising executive. Um, you know, my parents divorced when we were then when I was 10. So it was pretty young age, but they stayed in the same hometown together. Um, so I kind of joined in custody. So that was kind of good for stability. And it was, you know, I, I mean, I grew up in a college town. It was a, it was a you know, great life. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we uh, spent summers going back to Greece, um, which was, which was remarkable. And I, you know, I, two months in the summer in the Greek islands is not a bad way to, to, to spend your time. But we also went to, you know, got Martha's Vineyard and Cape Cod. And so, you know, I traveled a lot. I, for some strange reason, uh, uh, I became a Red Sox fan, probably because those trips to the Cape. But, the, but, you know, kind of baseball was introduced at a young age. And, you know, I wasn't a Yankees or Mets fan. I became a Red Sox fan, which all my friends in New Jersey never forgave me for. I bet. And what were some of the values that your dad passed down 
or your mom passed down? Where were they maybe aligned? Where were they different? Just talk about uh, what, what stuck with you from childhood. Sure. So, you know, my father really um, told some amazing stories. So, you know, he was born in 1938. So if you think about World War II, you know, the, the Nazis invaded um, Greece. So he told incredible stories of having to crouch down in his apartment in Athens, um, you know, for, for, you know, days, you know, months, or uh, uh, years at a time, in essence, bullets flying through the window, um, incredible hardships. And, uh, and so, you know, he certainly valued hard work. And, and, you know, my parents actually met at Cornell, they went there as well. Um, so kind of education was really stressed. So, you know, it was, it was hard work, um, uh, this kind of view of a world that, you know, it's just not the small place that, that, that America is, there's, there's a lot out there. Um, and so these, and, and, and kind of these are values that were instilled upon me. And again, just the idea too, that America is kind of a land of opportunity. Um, I, my, you know, my, again, if you think about for several years, what my father, his brother, my grandfather and grandmother endured um, in Athens uh, in World War II, um, it's pretty remarkable. So it makes you appreciate things. So it sounds like hard work, education, this global view, right. uh, and also that the U.S. is a, a pretty remarkable country and you should feel lucky that you're here and living during this time. So a gratitude for being where you're from and, and those, those tended to stick with you. I'll also throw one more thing out there. This is getting a little personal, but so my dad, you know, was here on a Fulbright uh, uh, scholarship. So he's, he's, a, he's Greek. Um, meets my mom, who is a Jewish girl from Long Island. Uh, uh, you know, they get married. And, and, and then, so if you think about how I was raised with this kind of, you know, so we celebrated every holiday. And just to fast forward, then I, you know, I'm married now with kids. My wife's Catholic. So imagine our wedding. And she's, and she's actually an immigrant too from Lebanon. Um, so imagine our wedding with, you know, the, with Greek Orthodox, with the, you know, the Jews from Long Island, the Catholics from, from uh, the Middle East and Virginia, just this incredible kind of multicultural explosion. And it's just the idea of just being tolerant of others. And so to me, that was, uh, uh, that was really important and really kind of, uh, I think why I ended up being a successful operations officer for the CIA, because you remember that, you know, when we go overseas, I, my, I spend more time with foreigners, not with Americans. The Americans are holed up at the embassy. Um, we're out in the streets meeting people. So you got to love other cultures. You got to love other languages. You got to eat like eating funny food and, you know, getting sick a lot from, you know, gastrointestinal illnesses. But it's, again, it's a sense of kind of openness and adventure that I think my parents really installed in me in so many ways. You mentioned celebrating all the holidays. Was there any religious framework that you uh, were raised with or was it just a culmination of the different ones? I think my parents could never agree. So it was everything, you know, we, uh, you know, we celebrated uh, every holiday. My dad did try to bribe me to go to Greek school. So he would, you know, take me to Dunkin' Donuts before and McDonald's afterwards, but that was totally unsuccessful. Um, <laughs> we, honestly, we celebrated Passover, Easter, Greek Easter, Yom Kippur, Hanukkah, Christmas. It was crazy. Now, Non-stop my, holidays. <laughs> my knows, I got presents all the time. Yeah. Now, of course, you could say that I'm totally confused about this, but, but on, on, on a serious note, I remember the first time I went to Jerusalem, to the old city. Um, and because you, you know, and, and again, as a, as and I specialize in the Middle East uh, for CIA, but as you, as you are in the old city, you see the intersection of kind of the, the three great religions. Um, you know, it, uh, it, was, it was pretty wild for me as someone who kind of lived that. <laughs> so, um, yeah. I always tell people I've gone to Israel a bunch and I think Jerusalem is one of the most fascinating oh, yeah. cities. I mean, you've traveled all over the world, but um, it's just got so much history. And if you're interested in religion at all, um, you know, it's just got 
It's got a little bit of everything there to go learn and, and experience. Um, being recruited from uh, in college at Cornell, what was the appeal? Why, what, why were they interested in you? How did you guys get matched? And, uh, and then maybe go into what, what comes after that and what the sure. experience is like. So, you know, it's the, unlike today, where in literally, so I, you know, one of the things I do right now is I talk to a lot of college students, even high school students who want to join the CIA. And they, they ask me, what's the secret sauce? And I say, actually, you go online. You literally do apply online now. Of course, you know, um, back when I, when, when I was uh, recruited for the agency, that wasn't the case. <clears throat> it was, you know, the Cornell had job fair. You know, there was, a, there was a career center there and CIA was coming and I knew that. Um, so, so I signed up and I had an interview. And so you kind of, you kind of uh, uh, go from there. Um, I think, you know, uh, I, I finished my master's degree and I, you know, so I undergraduate degree kind of Cornell calls it government. Uh, my master's was in public administration with the focus on foreign policy and my master's thesis was on, on Algeria. And, and so, you know, in my packet for CIA, they saw kind of my background and all my, you know, the, the travel and, and, you know, my interest in foreign affairs. And so it was, it was, uh, <clears throat> you know, you know, I think they obviously they, they, uh, we're okay with uh, with my coming there. The interesting part is the security process and takes a hell of a long time. So I think I waited around after I graduated, after I finished my master's degree, I came back um, to New Jersey and, and you know, sat, sat on my butt for a while, which did not make my dad all that happy. Um, but then, you know, and uh, I remember, I remember exactly early January, 1993 is when I started. Um, and I had, a, I had an interesting path into, into the agency and it's kind of worth exploring a little bit because I started off actually not on the operational side. I started off as an analyst. Because I'd gone to get my, because I received my master's degree and it was on the Middle East, I started off in, in, uh, in kind of our Near Eastern uh, analytic side. And I did that for several years and, and I made some trips. And interestingly enough, I remember it was a, it was a trip to Israel I took for the analytic side um, where I spent time during the Palestinian elections in 1996. And I traveled all through the West Bank, you know, with the State Department and just kind of writing papers and, and this and that. And I came back and I, I realized then that I wanted to go to the operations side. I loved the idea of inter, interacting with people living overseas. And my boss on the analytic at the side, at time at the side was a guy by the name of John Brennan, um, who of course, you know, went on to become the director for four years and is certainly very prominent now in public. Um, uh, but I went to, to John Brennan and I said, look, I, you know, I, I, I don't want to quit. I don't want to leave the agency. And I, uh, the analytic side was fine, but I want to become an operations officer, a case officer. Um, and he said, you know, he actually agreed a little too quickly for my liking. So he said, sure, that's no problem, which made me think I was a really crappy analyst. Um, but uh, so th then from there, I went off into a kind of our training program, which um, took about a year where you go to kind of, you know, learn the arts of, of espionage, whether it's how to, you know, how to go through the full cycle of recruiting spies. Um, and it's, it's a key point on that. So, so CIA officers are officers, not agents. Um, an agent is a foreigner who we recruit. So it's the, it's the, it's the process of recruiting agents, the process of, of learning how to conduct surveillance detection routes, dead drops, I mean, all the things you hear about in the movies. So I went through that training for about a year and then, then spent, um, you know, the next decade plus uh, overseas in the Middle East before I ended up coming back towards the latter part of my career um, and working in kind of senior assignments at headquarters uh, on the operational level. And I'm just doing, uh, I'm going through the years right now. And so you're over there during 9-11 um, and you mentioned earlier the spike that occurred at the CIA as far as the need for intelligence. Um, talk about that moment and like 
you can get as specific or as broad as you want. But I, I think what's fascinating about 9-11 is there are obviously people that that moment happened and they said, I want to go into the military or sure. I want to go, you know, the CIA or I want to be involved in the fight. And, but I run into people all the time who they were flight attendants and then the airline industry just came crashing down. And so they had to adjust or they worked in finance and then the wall street and they said, you know what, I'm going to go do something else or like 9 11 impacted people. I said this to someone yesterday and it's almost 20 years since 9 11, the quarantine and what we're going through now, while it's very different than 9 11, it reminds me of 9 11 in the sense that it's this watershed moment that I think people will remember it. Um, and sure. how it impacted them. So I think some people will go through this and say, gosh, I want to spend more time with my family. Or others will say, gosh, I want to get a divorce. And, and others will say, God, I, I would like to work from home. Or maybe I, I don't want to work from home. Or maybe this job isn't for me. Or maybe I'm laid off and I don't have a choice in the matter. Or my business falls. And I think 9-11 just shifted people's journeys in their life in all kinds of different ways. So I just want to give that as sort of a background to my question sure. in how it impacted you and your journey and your path and, and what it was like to be part of, um, you know, the agency then. So, so a, a, a couple things. So, so first of all, um, and this is just by chance. So this is, you know, when I first joined the agency, as I said, I, I joined the analytic cadre. Um, and while my background was in Algeria, that, you know, a lot of it had to do with kind of the rise of the Islamic fundamentalist movements in Algeria. So one of my first jobs, and this is back literally in 1993, 1994, was assessing, um, helping assess the rise of these, these extremist movements um, that stemmed from the Afghan war. And I remember writing papers or, or helping contribute to papers where they talked about someone named Osama bin Laden. Um, and so then as, you, as I kind of moved forward and then, you know, in, in my, in my uh, uh, operational career, um, you know, and I can't talk a great deal about it, uh, uh, but I was in New York on 9-11, and my daughter's daycare center was in World Trade Center 5. Mm. Now, by chance, she was not at school that day, nor was I downtown that day. Um, we were just, we were, we were somewhere else. So um, it was, uh, and, I, and I remember maybe five days after the attack, going with the FBI through the rubble, um, and, you know, really extraordinary moments. Um, uh, and you know, in terms of, of, you know, clearly all of us had a, had a feeling of we wanted revenge. Um, uh, there was a huge uh, fear that there was going to be a second wave of attacks. Um, and, but, but kind of the key point, and I talk about this a lot is, uh, and this has to go kind of my leadership philosophies is, so, so CIA and the intelligence community failed. Now, while we did a tremendous amount of work against Al-Qaeda before 9-11, um, while we warned against Al-Qaeda, uh, at the end of the day, the FBI and the CIA, and there's a there's a giant commission that was um, you know organized to, to to kind of go through and 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 put forth findings, but we didn't stop the big one, and so there was a huge feeling of guilt uh, amongst a lot of CIA officers, including myself, who had this expertise in the past and had worked on counterterrorism, um, and so that really kind of drove us and fueled us. Uh, now it's been a long time, you know, it's now we're, we're plus you know 19 years uh, uh, since then. Um, uh, but there's no doubt that uh, that there's this kind of fuel and anger that that drove so many of us. And then, you know, if I look back on my career after that, and and, and I left New York shortly after, and I ended up spending a lot of time uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, but you know, I think as I as I calculated that day, it was you know between between 2002 and then 2000 and 
2011, 2012, I'm sorry, I spent almost three years away from my family, um, whether it was in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, other places. Uh, and so this is all, this is the post 9-11 world um, that we kind of uh, uh, went into with, a, you know, with an anger and a, and a, and a drive um, that we can't let that happen again. But, but going back to my original point is, you know, we missed it. And so we have to make sure we never miss it again. So that kind of, you know, you own it and it's okay. So got it. Uh, and now we move forward with kind of a sense of, 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 uh, of purpose. And, and that kind of was really what, what drove me. And, you know, spending a lot of time away from the family is not easy, but um, you, you, you alluded to something before. And I actually, I wrote a piece. I'm trying to figure out if, you know, if I should send it to the post and New York times, but um, and I'm getting it cleared by the agency now, but it was, I just had this thought the other day that my kids have gone through so much adversity as well. And so right now under the age of this quarantine, you know, this actually isn't that bad because my kids grew up overseas. My kids grew up with uh, water shortages in Africa or, or the Middle East, um, with embassies being attacked where I, where I was there, with dad being gone, with Skype calls to Afghanistan as we're taking indirect fire. And, and I'm like, don't worry that the, the computer is shaking. Have you done your homework? Um, and so right now with my kids being kind of stuck here quarantined, uh, they're going to be just fine. But just like America is going to react like they did um, uh, after 9-11, you know, we'll learn our lessons and we'll move, move forward. I have a million questions. I'm going to try to just, ask, I'm just going to try to ask one, yeah. which is you mentioned the anger and, and guilt, uh, right. as like real emotions that drove you and, and, and your colleagues, what's the upside of anger and guilt driving and what's the downside? Well, sure. So, you know, everyone, you know, you have to, you have to be very careful about revenge. Well, for, for several reasons, one is that it can cloud your decision-making, um, but number two, legally, you know, the U.S. government. So we can't go kill terrorists um, uh, uh, based on, on something, you know, based on just that principle of re revenge. There has to be kind of continuing, um, uh, you know, imminent threats to the United States. So uh, uh, that said, kind of inner, it's a, you know, it's an, it's an interpersonal drive. So, you know, there's a lot of times where, you know, I didn't feel like being gone for months on end. I didn't feel like, you know, I, I, you, know um, uh, you know, being, you know, waiting in a safe house in Khartoum, Sudan, um, in a 120 degree heat, trying to go meet an agent, um, or, uh, or again, you know, being gone in Afghanistan for, for a year plus on end. Um, you have to have that kind of inner motivating drive. Um, it's to, and, and it sounds kind of hokey, but it's true. It's to, you know, it's to protect your family, um, it's to protect your teammates, protect America as a whole. Uh, and, and the other part too, is that, and, and perhaps it's a little different than the cold war, you know, this was an ideology between communism and capitalism. And trust me, at the end of my career, and we can talk about it later on. I was very much involved in Russian operations, and I'm no fan of the Russians. But Al Qaeda, about terrorism, you know, Hezbollah. These are these are organizations that want to kill Americans. And so, kind of getting up every day and going to work, knowing that that's our adversary, that wasn't very hard to do. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time later on in my career talking to young officers, both involved in counterterrorism and and and, and kind of the Near East. And I would say, like, if you can't get motivated for that, and that's okay if you can't. But if you can't get motivated that that's our guiding principle to protect the United States, like we're the ones standing on the ramparts, um, okay, maybe that's not the right line of work. Uh, uh, so it certainly motivated you know, me in my 26 years. And the sacrifice as far as being away from the family. Right. I'm, I'm curious, like growing up in the D.C. area, we would drive by someone's house and someone would say, oh, that person's in the CIA or right, right. that person, or like I've, I've had on one of my first guests was in the CIA. Uh, his name's Dimas Chavez and he has an amazing story. And like, I grew up with Dimas's daughter, Dolores. Like we didn't know Dimas right. was in the CIA. Um, 
And, and so I'm curious as you're feeling these emotions and you're experiencing, you know, being away and you sort of sugarcoated it, but bullets flying and, you know, basically being in war zones and like real traumatic experiences, clean up rubble at 9-11. I mean, like these are traumatic experiences. Sure. I'm curious if, if you sought help at all, um, you know, therapy or oh, uh, psychological sure. help. Is there, over the course of your career, was that something that was available? Was it acceptable? Like, I'm curious about the psychological element. Oh, that's, that's, that's a wonderful question. I have some, I have some, some kind of harrowing stories on that. So first of all, um, the agency, and, and I would imagine much like the military, has gotten much better uh, at this. So, you know, when we started off, uh, you know, going into Afghanistan, my first deployment to Afghanistan was early in 2002. Um, so I think it was March of 2002. And, and, and then, I, then I compare that to when I was a base chief in eastern Afghanistan in 2011 to 2012, there was, there was significant kind of, you know, time sitting down with the psychiatrist or psychologist, really, um, pre-deployment um, and, so, and, and post-deployment as well. And so, so I will preface everything saying we're better at that. But in, on a personal level, and I have a, you know, so, so I went in, not, and I'll shift to Iraq, um, you know, so it, uh, uh, in December of 2002 until um, about May of 2003, I was gone for my family. So it was about six months. So I started off. We went up to I uh, went up to live in the mountains with the Kurds in northern Iraq, and that was prepping for the invasion, the infill uh, uh, into Iraq. And then I ended up getting shifted because I had a certain expertise, and I went in with the naval special warfare units um, uh, into Iraq uh, with the invasion. Uh, uh, you know, to, to kind of hunt high value targets, hunt the Saddam Hussein uh, regime. I don't know if you remember this, the card of the deck of fifty five cards. Um, these were the senior regime uh, officials, so I was one of the uh, uh, operations officer from CIA with kind of an established uh, agent network inside, and I, we were, I was working with uh, with uh, naval special warfare to, to kind of capture them uh, in effect. When I came back from that, and I didn't even realize it, um, and it was I was gone for you know for for almost half a year, um, and you know it was it was such an intense time of nonstop um, operations at night and lack of sleep. Um, I remember, you know, at one point we didn't shower for about six weeks. So you kind of go into a whole different mindset. When I came back, I, I actually, I was not in good shape and I thought I was, uh, but my wife got really scared because I was, you know, I, I, I certainly had some form of PTSD. Um, I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweating all the time, um, terrible dreams. I was seeing visions of all the dead bodies and, um, you know, all the, all the airstrikes we called in or the operations that, that I was involved with where people died. <clears throat> so I was not in a, in a good uh, frame of mind. Now, I remember having a conversation with my wife and she said, look, you know, you need some help. And I kind of agreed to this. And this, this kind of flips to a principle that I talk about in, in, in my leadership presentations, but just, so just really not by chance, um, a guy by the name of, of uh, I call him Charlie. Um, he's passed away now, but he was kind of a legendary figure in the agency. Um, and he was the boss uh, 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 when I was in, uh, uh, going into Baghdad. He called us the whole original team, which is, which is myself. It was some former Navy um, special warfare uh, uh, operators and some other agency folks, and we went to his house in Cape Cod for two weeks. And me, and and, go, and this was with my my you know young infant son and my daughter. Um, and the whole team got together, and for two weeks we sat around and drank beer and ate lobsters and kind of reconnected. And that's when kind of my, my nightmares, everything went away. Just uh, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I probably need to see a psychologist for a long time to dissect that. Uh, but that was my therapy, frankly. 
Um, and I and I credit Charlie all the time for this. And, and one of the things that I look at it in terms of my values on leadership, and I call it family values, and that's a really silly statement, but it's the idea of having of being a member of a of a unit as something you know larger than yourself. And that really helped me when I came back. You know, it's in, in, it's the best part about being overseas in a really tough environment is your brothers and sisters there. But this helped me when I returned because um, I was not in a good good state of mind. And uh, uh, you know, if, if probably not for that trip to the Cape, um, I would have had to go see some professional counseling. And uh, you know, and and, and you know, no, I think that if if uh, if I kind of go back and think about all the, the craziness of my career, there's certainly things that. Um, it would probably be a good idea to go see someone even now. Yeah. I think you're, the idea of being part of something bigger than yourself, you think about Alcoholic Anonymous, and I'm worried about a lot of people that are going through that right now and are right. missing that, that meeting, that everyday morning meeting that they would do to stay sober and to support groups and the idea that we're in this together and that you're in a space that's safe. And we've all sort of gone through the same sort of experience and we're not judging you. Like we know what you've seen and we've seen um, like the idea of being part of something bigger than yourself is, is massive. It's why we set up communities and why we set up, that's why religion has been effective for a lot of people for a lot of years. It gives them support, uh, especially when something bad happens. And so it would make sense that that would, help you um, in those times. I'll, I'll, let me just jump. I'll tell you a great story just that, because again, it talks about this, this kind of cohesive team. Um, I had been deployed. I'd been out in the Middle East for a year. It was a, it was a, it was a country where the embassy, um, when, you know, the dependents had been evacuated. And so, so we had a really small group and it was really intense for a solid year. Let me fast forward two years after that. And I'm, I'm at my home in Vienna, Virginia. And I drive home from work one day and I see a, a minivan sitting outside my, my house. And I'm wondering, what the hell is this? So, you know, there's, I, we've had security threats against us over the years. And so the Vienna Police Department is, uh, are good friends of ours in, in, in helping protect us. But there was this minivan and the, the engine's running. And I, you know, I can't see inside the windows. And out pops an officer and his entire family. The same officer who I spent you know, a, a solid year with alone, you know, without his family, uh, two years earlier, he was coming back from a different assignment. And he said, he said, Mark, I just wanted to come by and say hi. And I said, uh, I said, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're coming back from the airport, like your family's here, they're exhausted. His wife was angry at him. He said, didn't matter. I just wanted to see you. And that was it. And that was all based on the time we had spent together earlier. And if you don't experience the intensity of having that, um, and it, it, this, this is not just for the military or special operations personnel or intelligence personnel, it's for anything. It's the intensity of an experience where you're with kind of a brotherhood and sisterhood. Because um, I actually, I kind of got what he did. I understood it. And it really stuck with me afterwards. And it's not a dramatic story of heroism. It's just a story of, of, of having that bond with, with, a, with a group of others that kind of will never be broken. Is that what you miss the most as, now that you're retired? That's a, that's a tremendous question. And the answer is 100% yes. Um, now, there's, I, I have to throw in a plug here. There's a, there's a great dive bar, my favorite dive bar of all time, is a place called the Vienna Inn. And it's in Vienna, Virginia. And it's a, long, it's a legendary agency hangout. Um, and, and of course, until this, you know, uh, uh, pandemic COVID now, I'd still hang out there, you know, and my, my kids would laugh cause I'd, I'd actually had like, when I talked to a journalist, I'd have to have them come meet me there. When I talked to, you know, when I'm working on my book, I'd go bring my computer there. Um, but that's because that was the location where we would all gather, you know, my team from Afghanistan, I, w- I got back in 2012, every year we'd have a reunion there. Uh, and you know, my, I have a, I have a baseball hat with a Vienna in kind of logo that I wore for a year in Afghanistan. That's in, in a glass enclosed case, uh, case there. 
And it's just, a, it's a tremendous agency hangout again, but it's the same feeling of comfort there and of, and of seeing friends from, from over the years. Um, so yeah, the answer is, uh, you know, I miss that. I miss that part tremendously. You know, in Afghanistan, we always joked, um, you know, we all, every night you sit around a fire pit and we called it caveman TV. Uh, uh, but, but that fire pit was kind of the foundation of this brotherhood and sisterhood. And I bet there's a ton of people who have served in these places who have fire pits at their homes, you know, all over the country back in the States now. Cause that's the, again, that's what I really do miss. It's interesting. Cause I work with a lot of college athletes and, um, they'll leave and then I'll check in on them a year out for a year out, year out from playing college, uh, sports. And I'll always ask like, what do you miss? And almost all of them say camaraderie. Yeah. Uh, they almost, and you, you talk to pro athletes after they, you know, retire from their sport camaraderie. Um, yep. and so it is a human experience. We are meant to be social. We're meant yep. to have deep connections with humans and, uh, I think it's part of what makes us special as a, as a species. Um, I'm curious about the secrecy nature of the CIA. And you mentioned being with, you know, special operators, whether, you know, it might be army rangers or Navy seals, or we, we hear about these people and often those people come back and many of them are not as secretive about their experiences and don't have, look, they have, um, codes and they have stuff that they certainly follow, but the CIA of all of the, um, you know, people that are in service secrecy is, is just right. a massive part for your, your book. You've got to get stuff approved for speaking. You have to get stuff approved. It's the secrecy nature of that work. And I sort of mentioned it earlier, like growing up in this area not knowing <laughs> what these people even right. did. Um, can you talk about that from your experience and what's that like to live in the shadows or live in secrecy? And um, like, once again, like the benefits of that and also some of the challenges or struggles. And I'm, I'm really curious about it from a human perspective, not like specifics, but just like a, what it's like to live in a, and do a job that is for the most part, you, you know, you're, you're sort of keeping it to yourself. Well, so there's, I think there's a, there's a, you know, a, a couple of things to talk about, but, but, you know, because uh, I, I, I do want to address kind of, you know, why I'm out in public now and, 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 and talking and kind of the, the decision I made to do that under the, of course, under the guidelines. But the CIA is secret for a reason. And so for me as an operations officer, it, it kind of comes down fundamentally towards, so, so when I'm deployed overseas, my, my role is to spot assess, develop, recruit, and then handle agents. Um, so my job has to be kept secret in the sense of I'm working for the army or the state department or for, you know, um, uh, you know, sometimes we have non-official covered officers, but I can't say I'm CIA because my job, my day-to-day -day job in XYZ country is to go out and try to recruit, you know, uh, assets for us. So ultimately the secrecy is designed to protect those, you know, the foreigners who spy for the United States is to protect them. Um, and you have to really kind of keep that in mind. Uh, because, uh, because just, you know, uh, uh, people are putting their lives, uh, on the line. I'll never forget, um, uh, a discussion I had, and this was, a, this is a, this is a story that has been cleared. So I just have to preface that, but it was, it was a, an agent we had, he's from a Middle Eastern country. Um, uh, and I would just been introduced to him and I was going to spend the next several years handling him in, in, uh, uh, in the Middle East. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's a really intense relationship you have with this, um, with this, with this person, because ultimately, you know, their life is in your hands. And he, and he kind of, he kind of sat me down and he said, look, I know that, that, um, 
that we're going to meet for the next two years and maybe we'll meet once every six weeks, month, every, every two months, maybe, maybe uh, uh, more so depending on a crisis. But he said to me, he goes, I know, let, let me tell you, I know you're going to think of me sometimes because you have other duties and probably other people to meet. Um, and you're going to go home in the summers and you're going to watch, you know, uh, you know, NFL football in the middle of the night on the armed forces network. Cause we're, you know, you're, you're in an embassy overseas, but let me tell you something. I'm going to think of you every day, the entire time we're together, because if you screw up once I'm dead. So, so when you ask me the question on secrecy, kind of that's the value of, of, uh, of secrecy for us now shifting forward. And, you know, one of the things that, that I decided upon retirement, and I actually, I went, I remember I called Michael Morell, who's the former deputy director and acting director of CIA. And he's, he's all over the press now. And I asked him, I said, look, you know, what are your thoughts of, of writing a book, of talking to the media? Um, and he was actually very, uh, very positive on this. Now he does it too, but, but cause, cause the bottom line is I always thought that, that CIA, you know, there's so many, um, negative perceptions out there. You know, there's this ridiculous idea of the deep state and that's getting into a political arena, probably wanting to stay away from, but you know, there's, there are CIA does have a very compelling story to tell as an organization that protects America. So if one can do this, um, you know, and, and obviously respecting the secrecy agreement that I signed and I continue to adhere to, I can't talk about classified information. Um, but, but it really can offer the American people a different window into an organization that was, um, that was, uh, that, you know, can be so misunderstood. Uh, and then the other part too, is just that, that I think that, that over my, 26 years, I kind of, uh, kind of uh, uh, honed a leadership style that I thought would be applicable, um, you know, in the private sector as well, or, or, or that others would find interesting, um, and a little bit different than some of the former military folks who talk about leadership now. So, so again, it, you know, it's, I remember the first time I, I, we told our children where we worked, um, and this was back, I, I clearly remember it was back in 2011, and, uh, and both of them, um, and if it was 2011, my son my daughter would have been 11, my son nine, and both of them kind of looked at us and laughed and said, we knew all along. You guys think you're a lot better than you really are. Um, Did your wife also work in the CIA? She works for the government. Uh -huh. um, uh, and so kind of she's very much kind of attuned to the entire kind of uh, 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 business and kind of the aura of the agency. Um, but, but if you think about over the years, my, my son said this to me, he goes, Dad, um, you know, I, I kind of know where you work because we've had Navy SEALs over for dinner. We've had princes of foreign countries. Uh, the other day, you invited a predator pilot over. Um, this is not like what my friends' parents do. So, uh, so we tried to pull a fast one on them, and they were a lot smarter than we uh, than we thought. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a great vignette. So we're 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 in the Middle East one time, and my daughter was out on our porch, um, and she was probably eleven or twelve years old. And I said, I said, what are you doing? And she was writing down license plate numbers of all the cars that were coming by just to check to see. And I. I was like, I looked at my wife and I said, oh my God, what have we done? Um, but uh, no, I think they're really proud of us. And so, you know, it's a, it was a, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting job, interesting world. My father told me one time uh, several weeks ago that, you know, and because none of his friends had any idea, but the New York Times had me as their quote of the day, which went out literally to seven, several million people. And uh, I don't know, I think I had to do on this about the Soleimani strike. Um, but I was the quote of the day. And my father said his phone was ringing off the hook uh, after that. So you know, people are certainly surprised, but. It's, it's what we kind of, you know, kind of got used to. He finally got to brag about his son. Yeah, I did. Uh, and your last name, I think they had, uh, they knew, they knew that you were with him. Um, right. What makes someone effective um, at that job? You talked about some of the roles and sort of yeah. the the tactical, technical roles right. that you would have to play. But what made what made the people that you saw be effective at that? Sure. Role? 
So the, the you know, I, and this this goes to my literature principles I talk about all the time. But I mean, my, and, and the the key one for me is a sense of humility. Um, uh, you know, it's a it's a it's kind of a, it's, it's a tough game. Um, it's not a game at all, in fact. But the intelligence business is hard, and you're going to fail a lot. Um, so you have to be able to overcome adversity, but you have to have this sense of humility. Uh, and and I think great leaders always have that. Great officers um, uh, have that. You can't believe your own hype. Uh, and, and I think that actually makes you stronger as well. So whether it's you as an individual, now, you know, you know, practicing humility, which means um, you're also not afraid to fail. Uh, you understand what failure is. Um, and, uh, and leaders as well, who, who, who people have to look at you and see um, uh, uh, someone who kind of can admit mistakes and move forward, even your bosses. I mean, there's so much kind of greatness that comes out of this single word humility. I mean, I love that. Um, because, because again, it's, it's about, it's about, you know, owning your mistakes and learning from them and moving forward. And then when you are challenged later on in tough times, um, no matter what it is, you know, in the intelligence business, whether it's, you know, the death of an officer and and, an agent who's in trouble, an embassy that's being overrun, um, you know, you kind of, you have that inner strength, but I think it's based on that concept of humility, which I, I think I look at, you know, leadership in the world now, I wish people would practice that a little more. Yeah, let's go into where we're at today. And we talked about this before we hit the record button. Sure. And, and oftentimes the stuff that we talk about before we hit the record button are the, are the best stuff. One, one day <laughs> I'll do a podcast where they don't even know it's recording and it's right. like, oh, that's the good stuff. We're like after the recording sure. happens, but let's go into it because you, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I highly recommend people follow Mark on Twitter. Um, and you're, you're very critical of the president and you know, before we started recording, we were talking about how if you're, if you're interested in leadership, if you are in a position of leadership, like right now is an amazing time to just be studying what to do, what not to do. And if you're not taking notes on what the person that's leading the most powerful country in the world is doing, you're probably missing an opportunity to learn and, and grow. So what are you witnessing, observing, noticing, um, talk about what, what your perspective is on sure. the leadership. So I think there's, there's uh, two ways to look at this. One is the leadership of the president himself, and we can talk about that, and then the leadership of those in the executive branch, those around him, which I think is also really important too because both, I see failures on both ends. And if, we, and if you only had failures on one of the two, it's more manageable. But failures on both is, uh, is pretty damaging. But look, coming from the, the president himself, I mean, if you, if you – you know, it, clearly there's been so much, you know, uh, uh, written about him. And I, I remember I, I just talked to a reporter yesterday who was calling and asking me about, you know, do you think foreign, hostile foreign intelligence services you know, are watching the president's daily briefings? And I said, of course they are, because they see someone who is, you know, uh, you know who, is, who is quite insecure, who's a narcissist, who has this kind of need for um, kind of gratification. And that would be of great interest uh, to others. And all that stuff is, is, is you know, it's, as I think it's, it's so kind of self-defeating on his part because what, what the president should be doing right now, it's, it's, it's glaringly obvious for anyone who studies kind of the leadership, and I know you do as well, is um, you acknowledge that mistakes were made in the past, you own that, and you move forward. You do so with humility. You do so also with the idea that we're going to have this kind of team, um, not only in the White House, but also with the governors, and you kind of collectively move forward. And you acknowledge that mistakes were made. And if you do that, everybody comes together. I mean, it's, it drives me crazy to see this, to, to see someone who is so incapable of taking any responsibility for anything. And, and, uh, you, know, and, and you know, I think about, you know, in my career, all the, and, and one of the things that, that I think while, why 
I, I'm effective in talking about leadership is because I acknowledge all the failures that I've had. I don't sit there and brag about everything, all the great things I've done. You talk about collectively after a long career, you realize how to lead based on failing a lot in the past. Um, that's something the president uh, uh, has not done. In terms of the executive branch, and I'm talking about the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the, the DNI chief, the CIA chief, um, the thing that drives me crazy about their performance in this is their inability to protect their personnel. And I think that, again, when you talk about leadership, that's a, that's a, a, a critical component of this. Um, there's no reason for the president to attack, whether it's you know, uh, uh, uniformed military officers on the National Security Council, um, the alleged whistleblower who was a, uh, allegedly a member of the CIA, the, the, the heads of these other agencies, you know, have, have you know, it, they're almost obligated, they're compelled to defend their personnel, um, and they've not done so. And what bothers me on that is that, is that as a leader, you kind of have a pact with, uh, and as, a, as, a, as an operations officer, I had this pact with my leadership, is that I'm going to ask you to do really hard things. Or as a leader, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to tell you to do hard things, or if I'm an operations officer, I'm going to do them. Um, and especially in the intelligence arena where, you know, these are, these are sometimes they're kind of unsavory practices that the American people would kind of uh, question, whether it's things like targeted killing or, or interrogation of suspects or kind of the litany of things that we've been asked to do since 9-11. But you do so knowing that your leadership is going to protect you. If that bond breaks, and I fear that it has because the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State and others have not defended their personnel, um, it's going to be really hard to get people to follow. It's going to be really hard to get people to join these organizations. So, so I see kind of, a, you know, two fundamental leadership breakdowns, both from the side of the president um, and certainly from, uh, uh, from the executive branch members. And, and then you go to someone like Dr. Fauci, who is actually exemplifying everything that we want in a leader. He's pushing back against the president. If he gets fired, so what? You know, you have to be able to live with your sleep, you know, live with yourself at night, sleep with, sleep with your decisions. I'll end with a, with a story because I always, I've always these great operational stories. And it was a time when I was in Eastern Afghanistan and I was a base chief and we were taking cross-border fire from, from Pakistan all the time. Uh, and, and one day we took 18 107 millimeter rockets and they kind of, the, they just beat the crap out of the base. And fortunately no one was killed. Um, uh, but we responded and we, we responded very strongly. And I remember I had, I had sent, you know, we had returned uh, 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 mortar fire, but we also sent some gun trucks um, into Pakistan killed a lot of people and it caused a huge diplomatic incident with the Pakistanis. They demarched us in Washington. Everyone was up in arms. And I remember um, I got a call from my leadership uh, uh, and they were really kind of questioning my, my judgment in this. And I, and I remember gathering my team together and, to, and, and these were really hard folks. Uh, these are former you know, Army and Navy special operators who joined the agency afterwards. And kind of uh, to a man and woman, they kind of supported my actions and what I, what I had done. And I said to myself, you know what, if I get fired, who cares? That's the right kind of attitude you have to have um, under, under kind of crisis situations. And so I, would, I, I, kind of, I certainly expected more from the executive branch leadership and, and, and from the president, you know, maybe that's just, maybe he's just that, that way and that, uh, that he can't change. But, but boy, these are all unforced errors. It's, it's so easy to lead right now if we had someone who could just accept responsibility and move on, um, but he can't seem to do that. Well, and focus on making sure that people feel safe. And right. so like what you're talking about, the leaders said, hey, you got to make a decision. I've got your back. We're going to make mistakes, but 
um, I've got your back and you need to do what you think is best. And I'm not going to handcuff you or, or, or stop you from making tough decisions because um, you have a tough job and, and mistakes are going to be made. And it's interesting because about a month ago, I had this conversation with my dad uh, when this stuff started to really start to surface. And I said, Trump's going to spin this and it's going to be a propaganda machine and it's going to be like everything that he did well. And sure enough, yesterday I see a video come out that's a literal propaganda machine on everything that he's done well. And to me, like when you screw up, you have to take the blame. And when things go well, you have to give credit to others. That's like leadership 101. And I, I, I just like, I see it in the sports world. I see it in the corporate world. The best leaders are the ones that, they will put themselves in front to, to keep their people safe. And when the shit hits the fan, they're going to say, hey, that was my bad. Um, even if it wasn't, like even yeah. if, because they need to take the blame. And then when things go really well, they're, they're looking out and they're giving, they're pointing the finger to all these other people. And, you know, when this first really started to get bad, you could see him pull away from the microphone and start to be like, well, you answer that, you answer that because he, he knew that it was, it was getting bad. So like, once again, Democrat, Republican, it, it, it doesn't really matter to me. Heck, even if you voted for Trump, I, I would hope that you would take notes right now on leadership and think about like, what does great leadership look like? And you could even believe that politically he's doing a good job and still be critical of his leadership style. Oh, that's like, great. Yeah. Those are not mutually exclusive. And uh, the moment that we stop being critical of our leaders is, is like a really scary moment because those jobs are hard. Your job was hard. Making those decisions, it's a hard job. And nobody said leadership's easy. Like, this is hard stuff. Well, there's, you know, it's, 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 it's great you said that because there the, uh, there's things that, that the agency introduced several years ago that I loved. And, and it wasn't pleasant, which is 360 feedback. I mean, you know, so many people go through these exercises. But I'll tell you, uh, uh, it can be brutal. I remember the first one I went through, there was, there was a, a great comment. One was, one, uh, someone said to me, Mark, Mark thinks he's a lot smarter than he really is. And I was like, wow. Um, uh, and, but, you know, you have to sit back and reflect. And the other comment, um, which, I, uh, uh, which I thought was, was really telling, and again, it makes you really kind of um, think about how you act each day, is, is the comment was, um, you know, Mark has a lot of authority when he speaks because of the reputation I've built. So he has to be much more careful in the future on his choice of words. And so, you know, that was an incredible moment for me to kind of think back um, because because there's, there's positives to that, but it's also like, well, I really have to kind of choose my words a little more carefully and maybe not be so flip. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, there's, a, there's, a, a, there's a vignette that I always love to talk about. And it was several years ago and I, when I was running an operational unit um, and this has to do with the kind of things we were talking about, about, about accountability, even when it was not necessarily your fault. But I was running a unit and it was kind of an offensive program where we we're going after the terrorist target. And, and something went amiss that day and we incurred what we call CIVCAS. We incurred some civilian, civilian casualties. And I have to go up uh, and no one was killed, but it still was bad. You don't want that. You know, these are, these are innocent people um, who, uh, who, uh, who got hurt. And so I remember going up to the seventh floor to our leadership and I remember going to the, uh, the acting director at the time and he said, you know, he said, what happened? And it was, you know, I, I, I had several choices. I identified someone on my team and made a mistake. Um, and so I went up there and I said, sir, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, you know, three things today. I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to tell you, uh, uh, or really two things, what happened and how we're going to fix it. 
Um, and so, so I went up there and in my ex explanation, what happened, I never named names. And I said, let me just preface, let me start this off is that we encourage civilian casualties. This is on me. I'm the leader of this unit. This is on my fault. We identified several, you know, um, kind of breakdowns. We've put in place these three kind of, uh, uh, new processes. So this can never happen again. And then I remember leaving, I said, do you have any questions? And this was a, this was a, a relatively kind of, uh, uh, angry leadership because the white house at the time really wasn't. I think right now, if there were civilian casualties, the White House wouldn't care. But under the previous administration, they did. Um, so they were they were a little worried about what the White House would think, and there was no questions. And I remember walking out, and a, a, you know, someone from our seventh floor, a senior officer, came up to me and he said, "That was great." And I said, "Why?" And I said, "He said, well, you did two things. One is you owned it. You took total responsibility, and you didn't throw anyone any of your team under the bus. And number two, you told them how you're going to fix it." And so, so what did that do? So for me, my leadership then had great confidence in me. But something more important happened too as a leader. My team saw what I did, you know. They, and they, and by the way, we did have a disciplinary issue with the, with the person, so I, they, they didn't get a free pass. But and we we dealt with that separately. But they also saw that I didn't publicly throw one of the members of my team under the bus. Um, and so you know, you just you kind of think about on those moments, and boy, that you could you could translate that into now on how to kind of move forward. Um, but uh, you know, we'll see. But that's so in alignment. So the Blue Angels, who we started this conversation talking about, they do debriefs every single day and they go yep. over their flight patterns and they critique themselves. They have others that critique them. So you get that 360 feedback. And then they say, and I'm going to fix it. And right. so there's ownership, like, and this is what I'm doing to fix it so that the pilot next to them knows, hey, this guy's actually going to fix that issue and not going to take my life by right. crashing into me. Uh, and the other thing that they add is, and it's, it's something that they say, is they also say, glad to be here. And they say, and I'm grateful to be part of the blues and yeah. remembering that I represent something bigger than myself and I'm, right. and I'm glad to be here. And 360 assessment tools, I've done it for myself. It's a great way. I, when I work with executives, we do 360 assessments all the time. And I think the key there is to take in the feedback, uh, acknowledge it, and then put a filter on it and think about what's useful and what might not be useful. Because there are times where also that feedback, they're not sitting in your seat and they don't have all the information. And, you know, working the CIA, I mean, you're probably sitting back watching the news sometimes and saying like, well, they don't have all the information and they're reporting on some of it, but there's a, a more full story there. And I think you, know, you see this in sports all the time where you know some of the story, but you don't know what's going on in the locker room. You don't right. know right. Yep. what went into a decision. And good organizations, by the way, they don't say everything. They do keep stuff to themselves. And I remember learning about the Detroit Pistons when they had their bad boys teams. And they would confront each other all the time. Right, yeah. um, and they would say, hey, I made this mistake and here's what I'm going to do to fix it. And if you wouldn't own it, you would have an issue in that locker room. Um, and and it, would, it would impact them. So I, I think that those things are, are spot on as far as what high functioning teams and leadership looks like. You said something earlier that I was curious about, which is that the leadership of the CIA is different than a lot of what you read as far as leadership in the military. And the leadership of the military has come under fire. Um, right. The SEALs have come under fire. Uh, I think the leadership in the military from everything I've read has changed and shifted how they operate, you know, from a top-down approach to maybe a little more collaborative and wanting their people to be a little more thoughtful rather than just take right. orders. Uh, I'm curious to get your perspective. You worked side by side with a lot of those, you know, the best operators that our country had, what were some of the differences that you observed or noticed from a leadership perspective 
um, in the CIA compared to the military? What maybe do you think that they got right that maybe you all could do better and vice versa? So I think, I think, you know, so I think the CIA and the special operations community are incredibly similar. Hmm. Um, uh, so I would actually lump them together and then you have kind of more kind of big military. Um, because, because, you know, uh, uh, and, and I'll, I'll say this because number one, um, you know, you, you, uh, we did after action reports, you know, exercises all the time. And so, you, you know, you better be thick skinned on stuff. And so whether it's a whether it's a U.S. Army Special Forces team or a platoon of SEALs, you know, that those small groups will be brutal towards each other uh, again. And so everyone is going to have a say in something. So, you know, the, the you know, maybe, you know, you know you're, you're it's, it's not going to be as much top down decision making. So there is room for kind of creativity and there is room for for discussion. And, and the agency is really good at that, too. So, you know, we really we really uh, uh, practice that. I, you know, there's there's great stories about when David Petraeus was the was the CIA director and you'd have a young kind of GS-12. So that's a really kind of junior analyst come to him in a briefing and he'd say something and he'd, they would be respectful of Mr. Director. That's wrong. And, and I think he was stunned by that because that would never happen in big military. Um, I think in the smaller specialized units and again in, in the agency, there is this um, almost an, a, a bit of an aversion to authority, I would say, um, but just a willingness to speak your mind. And, you, and as a leader, you have to give people um, that opportunity. Now, once it's discussed and, and the leader makes a decision, you, you carry forward on that. Um, but you can't kind of stifle kind of creativity. You can't stifle kind of, uh, 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 you know, uh, alternative points of view. And again, that Petraeus vignette when he was, when he first came to us, I think, um, is, uh, is pretty remarkable. I remember sitting, we had a meeting, um, uh, with, uh, 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 senior military, um, you know, four stars, uh, uh, and some agency folks. And again, one of our officers was very vocal and kind of speaking, uh, just a different, different point of view, um, towards the four star uh, a general. And afterwards, I remember a friend of mine down in Virginia Beach, who was, a, who was a SEAL, called me and said he had actually heard about the exchange because they were so shocked that agency folks were kind of could speak so, you know, uh, uh, forcefully to a, to a senior officer. But that's what makes us really good. And that's what an intelligence officer is all about, because you're just looking for, you know, for the truth. And I think um, that's, that's kind of some of the things that, that a lot of my, my tribe, my ilk, whether Republican or Democrats in the past, you know, have so much problems with the current administration now because just kind of this this searching for the truth that you know the the truth is absent in american political discourse you know i, I look back and I, i've said this on my twitter feed all the time i you know I, I look and you see stories of the president's you know son-in-law and daughter getting appointed to this new commission and i, I guess maybe it's not going to happen but this reminds me of saddam's iraq or bashar al-assad syria you know there's weird parallels that that my time dealing with kind of crazy autocratic regimes that we're kind of uh, seeing now. And again, this, this kind of search and always quest for the truth. That's one of them too. That's, that's been in short supply and that's kind of sacrosanct for, for an intelligence officer. It's, it's so, it's, it's incredible. I, I talk about community, we're talking about communication, right? How do we communicate with each other? Are we willing to confront each other? And I talk about the three A's of communication. You've got assumptions, assessments, and assertions. And right. when we live in an assumption world, it's, it's stories, it's, it's blaming, it's, it's guessing. Right. When, we're, when we're assessing, we're trying to find out. We're asking questions, we're probing, and we need to get there. But eventually, like, a great organization is going to try to speak off of assertion, which is truth, which is what you're talking about. And I go back to the best sports organizations that I've been around. The best idea in the room wins. And yep. that, it's not about rank or title. And when you create that culture, 
you allow your people to speak freely um, and feel like they're valuable and feel like they can add value to the group and the group in the organization. And it's not to say that at the end of the day, like you said, the leader won't listen to everything and say, all right, based on everything I'm hearing, I'm going with this. And that might be different from everything. That's totally fine. But when you make it collaborative, they are going to be more understanding of, okay, they gave me my, my opinion and they listened and they heard me. And there's a reason why they're making this decision. And I support them wholeheartedly. And when you don't have that collaborative nature, what ends up happening is you have much more assumptions and they just, they don't have the information. They don't have the data. They don't have any reason. And, and it, it, it almost neuters the entire team anyway. And so I, I think the other thing that I'm learning a lot about during this time right now is there are collaborative leaders right. who have always been collaborative. And now a tough decision needs to be made, whether it's laying off people or furloughing people or cutting their salary. Like there are tough decisions that people are making during this time right now. And if they haven't empowered their people to speak freely and really to make tough decisions, then they're right. not going to get a whole lot of information from those people right now, because all those people are going to be thinking about is their own security and their own safety. That's right. And, and, and so now you become isolated. And at the end of the day, the leader has to make tough decisions and make decisions that might fail, as you said earlier. But there has to be that balance of, hey, we're going to all come together. The best idea in the room is going to win. And then I, the leader, am going to make a decision and I am going to make mistakes. And when I make those mistakes, I'm going to own them and say, hey, guys, I made the mistake. That was my bad. And we're going to continue to try to do the best we can with the information we've got. And so to me, like, this is such an amazing opportunity to learn about leadership, communication. I totally agree. Yeah. And how a great organization will function. First of all, what's coming up for you as I talk? And then second of all, what else are we missing as far as leadership goes? Because sure. I know you study and think about this every single day. Is there anything else that we haven't hit on in our conversation today that you think is relevant, especially with people that are going through this, this virus and dealing with the uncertainty of the rest of 2020? Sure. And, and I think there's, there's a key point. So we just talked about um, uh, that, that, you know, kind of the, the principle uh, in leadership of, of listening. And there's, there's, there's a, you can take that a step forward when, I, when, you, talk, when you think about as a, as a leader developing your people, because, because everything you do, and that was the most fun of my, the end of my career was, was doing just that, seeing those mid-level managers or even the junior officers and trying to instill in them some principles when they eventually lead. And one of them is, is exactly what we talked about, you know, having that kind of open communication, um, having an ability to take criticism. But, but I go back, I, I did something when I was, uh, uh, when I was managing in the field and, um, and I used to call it, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a simple principle, but I call it, you know, uh, the acting chiefs. So let's say I was in XYZ country and I had a meeting somewhere else in a different city in that country. Ordinarily, you know, I'm still the boss. Uh, but what I would do is I wouldn't even tell our headquarters. I would say, hey, I'm going to be gone for 24 hours. If I have a team of 10 officers, and, and this is going to happen over a two or three year period, each time I'm gone, I'm going to name them the acting boss. And because this is a great uh, leadership, it's a great developmental tool. And so I remember doing this one time, and, and, and I was actually jumping on a helicopter to go somewhere. And, and the, the young officer, he said, okay, I'm, Mark, I'm going to hold, the, hold down the fort for you. And I said, no, you're not. Totally wrong. I said, you're going to leave this place and make every decision that you think you should. And don't go trying to call me and ask because this is, a, this is, you know, this is a, a leadership tool. 
Um, it's about passing the torch. And so, uh, uh, so even with the junior officers, you know, when they see this and they all got this experience, um, this helped immeasurably. It's going to help them down the line. It's going to help them in their confidence as well. Uh, and, and again, going back to having that kind of collaborative environment, um, you know, I, I love doing this. And and you know, was it successful or not? Who knows? But I, but I do know that I just talked to someone who's actually out in one of our war zones, and he's, he told me he's doing the same thing with his junior officers. So I was really kind of inspired by that um, because it's about you know passing the torch to the next generation, and that's arguably with all the you know, and, and I talk about failing a lot but you know I, I had a pretty successful career and I, I have lots of things I can't talk about but of all the important things that I did in my career and you know I go down to my basement and I have my kind of hero wall with the medals and all this stuff that everyone loves to keep but really developing young officers was probably the most important thing that that's going to be my legacy much more so than kind of an individual operation. That's so cool I think people leaders sometimes don't do that because they want control and I think right now we're seeing people deal with the lack of control. Um, you can't leave your house. I'm sorry. Like you can't control the stock market. I'm sorry. Um, there are elements that are just really out of people's control right now. And I think a lot of people are freaking out with feeling like they control their life. And the reality is, and you know, this, we don't, we don't control if we wake up the next morning, we don't control a lot of the weather. We don't, there's a lot of things that are that are out of our control. And when we let go of it, I love what you're talking about is no, your job isn't going to be, I, I'm not going to micromanage you to hold down the fort. Like I'm letting go. This is your ship run it. because at some point I'm going to probably have to move on to somewhere else and you're going to have to run the ship. So I'd rather you have some experience and leverage this time to learn, grow, make mistakes. And but we have to give the people below us space to do that if they want to develop. And that experience is, is massive. So I think it's a really cool anecdote. Anything else that you think is relevant or that we didn't hit on today that you're like, gosh, Brian, I think this is something that's really important either right now or just generally speaking. Sure. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that, that, that I, I was successful at the end of my career and kind of putting together kind of my leadership principles and, and it, it can, it a hundred percent, applies to the sports world, 100% applies to the private sector, it would apply to the administration now is just, you know, is, is understanding um, how to lead in this kind of time of ambiguity and time of uncertainty. And, and that's one of the things that I, that I think as an intelligence officer, kind of, I really learned how to do. Um, so it's, 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 you know, how do you lead in less than ideal conditions? It's really, if everything, you know, right now, if the stock market's going great, if there's a peace deal in Afghanistan, if the trade deal, you know, the, the, the whole trade issues with China are solved, President Trump's got it really easy. But, but leading right now in times of crisis um, is, a, is a lot harder. And so, you know, when I think about um, leadership and kind of the core principles, and we talked a lot about it uh, today, I think, you know, I think back to my time as, a, as an intelligence officer, it really taught me a lot on how to kind of have no fear in this, in this time of ambiguity. I think that's really important. Um, and that's when kind of leaders, kind of the cream rises to the top. And you kind of, you, you learn from all of your experiences to get to a point where you say, you know, I don't have great situational awareness now. Things are not good, but, but because I have built this great team of leaders, because I know how I can, again, how I can uh, act collaboratively, how I can take in information, um, uh, uh, I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to make decisions even under less than ideal circumstances. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of my philosophy. That's what, that's what I put forward and I love talking about, and um, you know, uh, maybe the administration will listen, maybe not, but, but I think that's, that's kind of the key out of this, this whole kind of predicament we're in right now. 
tell people where they can learn more about the work that you're up to. Uh, you do a lot of speaking sure. normally. Um, <laughs> perhaps there will be speaking opportunities in the near future. And uh, also you mentioned a book coming out, sure. um, you know, relatively soon. So if people want to learn more about what you're up to, social media, I know you have a website. Where can they learn more about everything you're up to? Sure. So yeah, so now this is going to be kind of the, the, the not so subtle plug. And so I apologize for that. So, so I am I, I'm in the process of writing a book. I'm about two thirds finished. Uh, the book, the tentative title is Finding Clarity in the Shadows. I have a book deal with HarperCollins. And, and so there'll be kind of future PR and, and kind of a, a, probably a, a, a book um, kind of signing uh, uh, you know, events in, in the future. But again, it's, it's based on my core leadership principles after 26 years. Um, and it's, you know, it's, I always talk about it's not developed from MBA programs. It's developed in the third world. Um, and it's about, um, it's about kind of aggressively, uh, 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 seeking out opportunities to lead under, under less than ideal conditions. So, so that's the book deal. I, and I, I give these kind of speeches as well. Certainly the same principles. Um, uh, Harry Walker agency is the, is the speaker series that I, that I'm a member of. And so if that ever opens up in the future, I'll be back out, um, in, uh, uh in doing it. And I also have a website, uh, it's www.findingclarityintheshadows. Um, dot com and then finally that the, my my twitter page is is something that that my friends beg me to stop being so political they love when i tweet about baseball um or about you know my 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 uh my kids but uh, but i do kind of comment a lot on on international affairs and, and ironically enough i get lots of calls from the press and the media all the time because they'll have read a tweet and so you know i was talking to politico yesterday and so uh uh the, my my twitter i think it's at m polymer so do that at your peril um uh, and then, and then finally, and, and kind of my, my other passion, that I just have to throw in there is baseball. And so everything we talked about leadership wise, um, I have all these kind of similarities and kind of from the, from the baseball world and baseball is a sport where you, again, you need to have that sense of teamwork, um, where you fail all the time, you know, you hit 300, that's failing seven out of 10 times. Um, and you, you know, you make the hall of fame. And so, so I do a lot of work with baseball teams as well. Um, just talking about kind of those, uh, those core, uh, uh philosophies. So. Um, whether it's uh, whether it's talking about leadership, talking about sports, baseball, or, or going to the Vienna Inn, which is the greatest dive bar I think in the on, on the planet, um, you know that's a, that's kind of the essence of what I'm doing these days. Well, I look forward to when the dust settles here, and I'll make my way out to Virginia, which is which is sometimes difficult for us Marylanders, but uh, I'll, I'll cross that that border or that bridge is what we, we usually are crossing a bridge to get over to you. Um, and I'll have a beer and, and hopefully can see your hat in the, in the glass case as well. Um, I just got to get permission from my wife in order to do it, but we'll make that happen. Um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Mark, I've been talking to a lot of military people over the last couple of years and you never know like what to say to them as far as like, thank you for your service or, or how all that plays, but whatever the right thing to say to you is that's, that's what I want to say. I just appreciate everything you've done for our country and, you know, put yourself in, in harm's way in, in service of uh, our freedom and our safety and um, having been at an age where nine 11 certainly hit, uh, close to home and being in Washington, D.C. And, you know, I don't know if you knew people in the Pentagon, but, sure. um, you know, certainly a watershed moment in my life. And um, so it, I think people of my age are just very cognizant of what the world was back then and 
and the decision that some made to go toward um, the conflict. And, you know, some of us just went on with our life. And so uh, there, there is gratitude and appreciation from this side of the computer. And, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for your time. Uh, the person that wrote that 360 and said that you're not as smart as you think you are, I would take issue with that person. Uh, I've learned a ton um, and looking forward to learning more from you in the future and continuing to um, have conversations with you that are meaningful and intentional. So thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's been, a, it's been a great honor. I've had a great time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. The, the key one for me is a sense of humility. Um, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's kind of a, it's a tough game. Um, it's not a game at all, in fact. But the intelligence business is hard, and you're going to fail a lot. Um, so you have to be able to overcome adversity, but you have to have this sense of humility. Uh, and, and I think great leaders always have that. Great officers um, uh, have that. You can't believe your own hype, uh, and and I think that actually makes you stronger as well. So. Whether it's you as an individual, now you know, you know, practicing humility, which means um, you're also not afraid to fail. Uh, you understand what failure is, um, and, uh, and and leaders as well, who, who, who people have to look at you and see um, uh, uh, someone who kind of can admit mistakes and move forward. Even your bosses. I mean, there's so much kind of greatness that comes out of this single word humility. I, mean, I love that.